Hi, welcome to Maverick Messages. Thank you for coming. I'm Shelby, and I'm a freshman here at Providence Baptist College. Please listen closely to Brother Uswardy as he teaches about Baptist history and what it means to be a Baptist. It should be no surprise that people who claim to be Christians and claim to follow Christ have false doctrines. If they have false doctrines, that means that they don't have on the inside what they claim to have on the outside. So if someone says you got to be baptized to be saved, wolf in sheep's clothing. Somebody says you need to baptize babies so that they won't go to hell, wolf in sheep's clothing. What's another one that came on fairly early in the, uh, uh, in the centuries of church history? Uh, the idea of a church... Oh, yeah, talked about Judaizers. Okay, the, the idea of a church hierarchy church hierarchy. This is the idea that there's somebody above the local church who has authority over the church. The Bible says that there's a pastor who leads the church, teaches, preaches the Bible to the people, and he's an example. He's not the head of the church. Who's the head of every good church? That's Jesus Christ is the head. But there is a pastor, and he has authority to rule the church, but he's not a mediator between God and man. Pagan religions existing before Christianity had a priesthood. And the priesthood always had a higher status than the common people. And the people needed to go through the priest in order to get to the God. So people who came into churches under false professions brought this pagan idea with them. So we know since we are in a house of God or a congregation of God, then we probably ought to have some priests who can go between us and God. And and as far as we can tell, this is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which is mentioned in the book of Revelation before the first century is even finished. And Jesus said that he hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So any church hierarchy where you've got a local church and maybe there's a local pastor, but then there is a authority structure above and outside the local church. You've got a bishop who rules the churches in an area. And then you've got a cardinal who rules over the bishops and the churches in a, in a region. And then you've got a pope who rules over all the churches in the world. That is unscriptural. That's a false doctrine. And it came in fairly early. And uh, this is a sign of wolves in sheep's clothing. Um, all right, so we have a direct unbroken line of truth and faith from which many have departed over the years. Now, if somebody has the truth, and they go away from it. Maybe they add something to it. They take something away from it. We would call that error. All right? So there were people that left the faith and went off into error. And they are different from people who have the truth. And it is appropriate that they ought to be different and have their own church house and their own rules and their own thing that's that's up to that's between them and God now we recognize that they are in error and we don't join them in our error and we don't make any effort to bring everybody back together unless they're going to forsake their error and come back to the way of the truth 
Sometimes people leave because they go off into false doctrine. All right, an error is like a mistake. False doctrine is a false teaching. Sometimes these types of false uh, ideas are known as heresy. In fact, Baptists have often been accused of heresy because we don't believe what the Catholics teach. And they get it all backwards and they say that we are the heretics when in fact they are the heretics. Now, true Christians followed the doctrine. Oh, you know, if you're in error, sometimes you'll split and there will be a split where you'll have like the, uh, the Lutherans split off from the Catholics and then the, um, the uh, you know, somebody else will split off from the Lutherans and there's all kinds of splits. But uh, if you hold to the doctrine of the apostles, then you have biblical faith based in a local church, and we don't have to make everybody else believe just what we believe, but we do preach the truth and invite people to come to the truth. Now, Jesus did not write anything during his earthly ministry. We mentioned that. He taught his apostles, and he expects us to receive the truth as it was handed down through them. They had specific apostolic authority that nobody today has because they were delivering the doctrine of Christ. He inspired them to write the Holy Scriptures of the New Testament and he gave them apostolic sign gifts to validate their calling. That's why the apostles could heal people and raise people from the dead and do things that before the Bible was completed validated that they were the true followers of Christ. Now, you have the apostles. They had the doctrine, and they passed it on to the next generations, and it came down to us from them. Let's take a look at a few of these people who were involved in carrying on the doctrine even after... Uh, well, let's start with the apostles. All right, now here's John the Apostle. John the Apostle was probably the youngest of the apostles. He was the last of the 12 apostles to die. And he was the only one that, as far as we know, did not die a martyr's death. He lived at the end of his life in Ephesus, and he pastored the church in Ephesus. One of the more interesting experiences I got to have when I was on the mission field was we took a little uh, Mediterranean vacation and we actually got to visit the city of Ephesus. The ruins of Ephesus are very well preserved. They are in what is now the country of Turkey. There's lots of interesting things in Ephesus. I could tell you about other times. But um, Ephesus was the place where John died. It was his last pastorate. Uh, we act they actually showed us the ruins of the Christian church in Ephesus and they tell us that John was buried in those ruins, even though they don't really have a grave marker. They do say that John was buried, and they showed us that. Um, they also say that probably the Virgin Mary, the tradition, the history says that the Virgin, that not the Virgin Mary, but the Mary, the mother of Christ, who was the Virgin Mary, uh, she was taken care of by John until the end of her life. So it's very likely, and it, history tells us, that uh, Mary also died in Ephesus, and they have a place there that is supposedly her burial place in Ephesus. Now, John in Ephesus, he was the last apostle left living. All the other apostles had died. He was the last one. He was the last one who had the authority to validate 
or nullify a scripture that was presented as a valid part of the word of God. He was the last of the 12 to die. He died in about A.D. 100. Which would mean he was probably 80, 90, 100 years old when he died, depending on how old he was when he was born. That's a joke, okay? Depending on when he was born. He lived in Ephesus, and it was his ministry at the end of his life to personally identify which of the books were inspired and should be scripture and which of them were not. When he died, there was no one left who could say, we have a new scripture, this should be in the Bible. By the time he died, all of the books had been identified that were inspired scripture. It was no secret. It was well known to all the first century churches. Um, by the time he died, all of the books of the New Testament had the, stample, had the stamp of approval of at least one of the twelve apostles. Well, when John died, there were no more apostles left. So we haven't had any new scripture that should be added to the Bible since John died. It takes an apostle to validate a scripture as being part of the word of God. All right, so there's John. Of course, he was persecuted. They, according to the story, he was boiled in oil, but he did not die. There's different versions of that story. Some versions say that uh, he was boiled in oil and did not die and was not harmed in any way and he stood in the pot of boiling oil and preached the gospel and thousands were saved in the Colosseum or whatever. That's probably a little bit embellished. There are other historical references that seem to indicate that although he was boiled in oil and survived, that he was severely scarred and disfigured for the rest of his life. I don't know which of those is true, but... Um, Apparently he was boiled in oil, but did not die. Um, died of old age. Okay, then we had some followers who were trained by, specifically by John the Apostle. Now here's an early guy that was one of the, one of the forefathers of our faith. I would identify him as a Baptist, even though at the time Baptist was not the popular name for people like this. By this time, the word Christian was the accepted word to identify people who followed Christ. Polycarp of Smyrna. Smyrna is one of the seven churches of Revelation, and Polycarp was pastor of the church at Smyrna at about the time that John died, and he was a student of John. John personally trained Polycarp. He probably, well, he was pastor of the church at Smyrna, and he probably, according to our historical sources, he probably is the one who arranged the books of the New Testament in the order that we have them today. He was well known as a publisher of Bibles. Of course, back then they didn't have printing presses. So he would oversee the copying by hand of manuscripts of the New Testament and he arranged them in the order that we have them today. 
Now, Christians of that day, they knew what was the correct scriptures that should be accepted. What do we call the group of scriptures that we accept as authentic? It's called the canon, C-A-N-O-N. So the Christians of that day, they knew what was the correct canon of scripture, and they worked very hard to copy and preserve the Holy Scriptures. They held the truth, they preached, and they published it, and they lived by it, and it brought persecution on them. Polycarp lived to be 86 years old. He was faithful unto death. In about the year 155 A.D., he was arrested for being the leader of the Christians in Smyrna. The Roman government decided that Christianity was a politically dangerous cult because politically it was important that the people would worship Caesar, the Roman Empire. And they thought, well, it's really dangerous to have somebody that refuses to honor the emperor as God. Now, Polycarp was the leader of the church in Smyrna, and uh, the church was growing so quickly that it was threatening to displace the worship of the Roman gods and the Roman emperor. Now, when the guards, the Roman guards, came to arrest Polycarp, and he said, welcome, let me serve you a meal. He prepared a meal for the guards who were going to arrest him, and he asked them, can I have an hour to pray? And they said, okay, old man, 86 years old. They gave him time to pray. He prayed so fervently that the guards were sorry that they had to arrest him. They began to weep that they had to arrest this holy old man. Um, and there was an angry mob outside demanding that Polycarp be put to death. Now, the chief Roman officer felt pity for Polycarp because he was such a gentle man and very old. He urged the pastor, simply put a small pinch of incense into the flame by Caesar's statue and just say, Caesar is Lord. That's all you have to do. If you don't do that, you're going to be tortured. You're going to be killed. And Polycarp refused because he knew that Jesus is Lord. And he said famously, 86 years I have served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The Romans said, we're going to torture you. We're going to throw you to the wild beasts. We're going to burn you alive. Please, just throw a little pinch of incense into the fire and just say Caesar is Lord. You don't even have to mean it. Just say it. And he said, your fire only lasts a little while, but the fires of judgment reserved for the ungodly cannot be quenched. The soldiers brought him out to burn him. They were going to nail him to the stake for the burning, but he said, he who gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me also to remain there unmoved without nails. History says that he prayed and praised God as the fire burned, but the flames did not hurt him. I don't know how much of this is embellished or exaggerated, but this is what the historians say. Then, according to the story, the executioners pierced his body with a spear, but he did not die. His flowing blood put out the fire. Finally, the soldiers started the fire again and burned him to death. Now, perhaps some of those details are exaggerations, 
but it is certain that Polycarp died a faithful martyr. It's interesting to me that this first century era of pure apostolic faith and zealous service is pictured in the book of Revelation by the church of Ephesus. John the Apostle pastored the church of Ephesus and he was faithful right up into the end of the first century. The second church mentioned in Revelation, which pictures the time of persecution of the second and third centuries, was the church at Smyrna, which is where Polycarp, a student of John, was the pastor and where he was martyred. So if you, uh, you take a class on Daniel Revelation here, you'll get into a lot of those um, similarities between the churches of Revelation and the time periods of church history. The second and third centuries were times of great persecutions. The Roman Empire was the persecutor, and Christians were beheaded, crucified, burned, thrown to the lions, and tortured and killed in ways more cruel than we can imagine. Another one of the interesting experiences you get to have when you're a missionary is you get to travel around. Uh, Russia is technically, the part where we lived, is technically in Europe. So we would visit a European country just like you would visit Florida or Texas. And uh, we were able to go to Italy. We were able to spend some time in Rome, got to stand in the Colosseum and see this place where many Christians were tortured and killed. Some of the things you see in the, in the painting here, uh, you have a group of Christians praying. They are about to be killed by wild lions. Well, you got a tiger there. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Uh, we have some of the Christians are crucified around the edge of the stadium there. Some of them are being set on fire. It is said that uh, the Emperor Nero once lighted up an entire, uh, the, the road leading to his estate where he had a party. He had burning Christians on crosses that were lighting his party and the road leading to his, to his home. And uh, this went on for a couple of hundred years where Christians were severely persecuted. And uh, the records of the empire refer to the victims simply as Christians. Interestingly, a lot of these people didn't have time to sit down and write their history and say, you know, well, this is our church, and this was our pastor, and these were the members, and these were some of the big days that we had. They were trying to struggle for their lives and hide out from the Romans, but we find them mentioned in Roman records. Yeah, there were 57 Christians that were captured and wouldn't uh, pray to the emperor, so we threw them to the lions, or we crucified them, or we set them on fire. So their history is written in the records of their enemies. Um, now, they still, as the, as the word Christian was used for these centuries, they were still carrying the name of the faithful Gentile believers in first century Antioch. The witness of these martyrs proved that their faith was real. And seeing something real to the point where these people would die for their faith, let the spectators who were calling for their execution, let them know what they have is more real than what you have. And many people literally came to Christ by the testimony of these people who would die rather than deny Christ and drew more people to Christ. It's estimated that there were 7 million Christians by the end of the 3rd century and probably 2 million had been killed for their faith. 
Now, so far, the, the faith of Christ represented by these Christians who were called Christians was pure. It was causing these people to live biblically, to die for their faith rather than change. But when we get to the fourth century, things changed dramatically. Uh, there was an emperor called Constantine early in the 4th century. Now, the 4th century, for those of you that were in my history class, you know this, that the 4th century is the time when the years begin with the number 3. Yes. That's why we're in the 21st century and the years begin with the number 20. I was born in the 20th century where the years begin with the number 19. Okay, so in the 4th century when the years began with the number 3... Um, the emperor Diocletian, the Roman emperor, re resigned and several powerful Romans fought to become the new emperor. One of these men was Constantine. Constantine was one of the guys competing to be the emperor. And he said that before a great battle, he saw a vision of the name of Christ. And he saw a symbol that looks something like a cross, but it's not exactly. Uh, and he, he, in his vision, he, he was told by a voice that by this sign you will conquer. So he told his men to put this symbol on their shields, which looked like a cross. And he said, this is the symbol of Jesus Christ. And with the symbol of Christ on our cross, we will win the battle. Well, he did win, and he became the new emperor. And he said, well, I guess maybe there is something real about Christianity. Now, Constantine ordered the persecution of Christians to stop. And he claimed that he had become a Christian. If you examine his, uh, his testimony, he really did not become a Christian. And the Christians were rejoicing that the persecutions were over after hundreds of years. But just a few years later, the government went a step further and declared that Christianity was the official religion of the state. In other words, by law, everyone was required to become a Christian, whether they really believed or not, and the emperor was in charge of Christianity. This is called a state church. And this is a very dangerous thing. You don't want to have a state church. Sometimes I get in a little bit of trouble when people tell me, you know, America is a Christian nation. I will agree that America is a nation that was founded by people who believed in the Christian principles of the Bible. But America is not a Christian nation as most people would define a Christian nation in which Christianity is the official religion that you must have in the country. The, uh, the, nation, the United Kingdom, England, in other words, they have a state church, the Anglican Church. So they have a Christian nation because they have an official church that is supported by the government. We don't want that. We have a nation founded by people who believed in Christian values. If that's what you mean by America's a Christian nation, I totally agree with that. But we don't have a state church. So 
sometimes that's where the yeah people arguing where they say two different things and they argue past each other and they're both not exactly right but anyway so Christianity became the official state religion and now that's something even more dangerous to Christianity than a pagan government now before they had a government that would find them worshiping Christ and they would arrest them torture them and kill them now they have a government that says you must be a Christian. That is the law of the land. And you will be a Christian whether you want to be or not. So the churches became filled with unsaved people. You have to be a Christian. That's the law. Well, if that's the law, I'll go to the Christian church. I don't believe it, but I'm going to have to go. And then they would send officers, they would send government soldiers around to inspect people's homes to make sure that they were good Christians and following the Christian ways and not worshiping the old Roman gods. So a Roman officer comes to your door and he says, I am from the government and I am here to help you. Those are the scariest words in the English language. I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. You are now a Christian by decree of the emperor of Rome. And the person would say, okay, I'm a Christian. The officer comes into your house and notices that you have a statue of Jupiter. He says, hey, why do you still have a statue of Jupiter? You are a Christian now. Now, this person didn't really convert to faith in Jesus Christ. They were still praying to Jupiter. But they didn't want to get in trouble. So the person would say, who's still praying to his pagan idol, but now he's got a cover story. He says, that's not Jupiter. That is St. Peter. This is, where the, this is where Catholicism gets all of these statues. I'm not praying to Jupiter. This is St. Peter, and I have this as a memorial. In fact, when I pray before the statue of St. Peter, I feel like that he helps my prayers go up. He's my prayer buddy, and I keep a statue of him here. Well, I guess that's okay, but wait a minute. I notice over here you have a statue of the god of war. That is Mars. I recognize that statue. That is Mars. And all the boys go to Mars to get more candy bars. And the girls go to Jupiter to get more stupider. Why are you still praying to Mars? You're not supposed to have an idol of Mars in your house. That's not Mars. That's St. Paul. And so the government said, oh, well, that's okay. Peter's okay. Paul's okay. But obviously, you have a statue of the goddess Venus. Because Venus is carrying her child Aeneas. And that's a famous statue. And you're not going to fool us. You have a statue of Venus and you're in big trouble. And they would say, now actually they were praying to Venus, but they didn't want to get in trouble. So they said, that's not really Venus. That's the Virgin Mary. 
and the baby Jesus. So the pagans flooded the churches. Unsaved, unconverted pagans flooding the churches and they brought their statues with them. The state funded Christianity and built beautiful cathedrals. This is the Vatican in Rome. This is the headquarters of the Roman Catholic Church. I had limited time when we were in Rome. We wanted to see the Colosseum and a couple other things. I got close enough to the Vatican that I could see it, but we didn't take, we would have had to spend most of a day to go see all that stuff, and I wasn't that interested anyway. But I've seen the Vatican. My eyes have laid on the Vatican. And true believers were horrified. Our churches are full of unsaved people. Our people are praying to Mars. They're praying to Jupiter. They are praying to the Virgin Mary. They're, they're praying to Venus, and they claim that they're Christians. And our church has become totally corrupted. And what would you do if your church became totally corrupted and filled with people who were not believers? If you didn't have the power to kick them all out and reform and make it right, the only thing you would have left to do is what? You'd have to leave. So they left the churches, and now they had to begin meeting in secret again. And now, because they're not going to the official government Christian churches, now they're being persecuted again. Now they're not only the target of the government because they're not worshiping as commanded in the official cathedrals, but now they face persecution from the pagans who now had hijacked the name Christian. So now the name Christian meant something totally different. And it was no longer enough to call yourself a Christian because there were lots and lots of people calling themselves Christians that weren't really Christians. They were Christians that were supported by the government. Oh, there's a picture here of uh, uh, St. Saint, Saint Peter's Basilica. This is the uh, inside the Vatican. This is the church where the, uh, where the Pope does his prayers. It's covered with gold and uh, magnificent, actually, as architecture, but totally godless in its, uh, in its doctrine. Um, so the adoption of Christianity as the state religion was the birth of the Roman Catholic Church. That's where the Roman Catholic Church got started. Roman Catholic Church does not go back to Jesus. It doesn't go back to Peter. It goes back to Constantine and the adoption of Christianity as the state religion. The state did not persecute the so-called Christians who were in the official Catholic Church, but the Catholics persecuted the true believers who now were called by various names. Now you have people that hate true believers, and they're going to call them names again. Well, the name Christian has been hijacked by the Catholics. So the Catholic persecution turned out to be much worse than the Roman persecutions. Now here's a fun little picture of medieval Roman Catholic persecuting of Baptists and people who really were Christians. You can see we are, we are hauling them up 
by their wrists and hanging them. We are burning their feet. We are pouring things down their throat like molten lead. They had a uh, they had a particularly brutal treatment where they would take a rough linen rag and they would stuff it in your mouth. You were strapped to a table with your hands and legs tied down. And then they would drip water into your mouth, which would cause you to swallow. And then each time you swallow, that rough linen rag would go down your throat a little bit farther. And after, I don't know, a day or two, you have a rough linen rag going all the way down your esophagus into your stomach. And then they would come along and grab a hold of it and yank it out, causing severe damage to your digestive system. Um, now, the, the holy Catholic persecutors here are wearing these little funny hats, and they are burning people and whipping people and putting them on the rack where they stretch them. Uh, this was all done in the name of Christianity. Christianity has the, the people calling themselves Christians have done some truly horrible, horrible things over the centuries. And uh, that's why the name Christian is really not enough today to identify who we are. Um, the Catholics hunted down the believers who would not conform to officially sanctioned religion. They interrogated them. They gave them an opportunity to recant. What does it mean to recant? It means to admit that you're wrong. They said, all right. You believe in Jesus only. You don't believe that the Holy Catholic Church is the true church. And you must, you must recant. Recant. And the true believer said, I can't recant. And then they would say, but you must recant. And the believers would say, I shan't recant. Anyway, it sounded something like that. They interrogated them. They gave them an opportunity to recant. Then they were tortured. They were burned. They were drowned. That was very popular with Baptists. They would drown them because they said, oh, you guys like water? You like to be dunked underwater? Okay. We'll wrap uh, 50 pounds of chains around your legs and throw you in the, in the river, and we'll see how much you like water. They were pulled apart by horses. You know, if you take four horses and you tie one horse to your right hand and one horse to your left hand and the same thing with your feet and you point the horses in different directions and you say, giddy up, pony. That does not end well. That's called being drawn and quartered, which means you're pulled into four pieces. You are not likely to survive that treatment. They were starved, they were frozen, and they were killed in many ways too horrible for us to imagine. About once every five years, I try to read Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is a great old book about the men and women who paid the price for our faith. And uh, that's very, very important to know. These were our forefathers in the faith. They believed in the pure faith of the Bible, and they they rejected the false faith of the Roman Catholic so-called church. And uh, that's the price that was paid for our faith. All right, now here is a chart 
very important little chart that you will find in a book called The Trail of Blood. While you are here at Providence Baptist College, one of your instructors will almost certainly assign you to read this little book, The Trail of Blood. It is a great book about Baptist history. And I don't have time to go through the whole thing right now, but basically, let's see here. What did we do? What did we do? What'd we do? Basically, this chart is divided into 20 centuries, 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century, 4th century, all the way up to the 20th century. And what it shows is that originally these red dots down below the line are people who believed in the true faith of the gospel. And then there are people who departed from the faith, and in about the third and fourth century began to have false doctrines and there were people in every century who can be found in records that held to some scriptural doctrine in protest against the official state church for example um, you will find in the records of the Roman Empire and many of the European countries uh, of the Middle Ages you'll find something like this. A large group of Anabaptists in Vienna refused to, re to recognize infant baptism, so they were chained together and thrown into the river to drown. Now, these people didn't have time to sit down and write the history of the Anabaptists, but they wrote that history with their lives, and it was recorded in the records of their enemies but yeah, we had a bunch of Anabaptists, and they wouldn't recognize that our infant baptism is legitimate. So we did the right thing, and we chained them together and threw them in the river to drown. Good riddance to them. That is a testimony of people who believe what we believe. And they were known as Anabaptists. In other words, Anabaptist means a rebaptizer. If you refuse to recognize the infant baptism of the Roman Catholics and someone gets saved and they say, well, I got baptized as a baby and they say, no, that didn't count for anything. You need to be baptized again to be baptized scripturally. Those people would be called, this derogatory term, the rebaptizers or the Anabaptists. There's a very common name throughout history of the church age, people who wouldn't recognize infant baptism were often called Anabaptists. And they believed they were what they, at least what we know of them, which is a, just a little bit. I don't know what else they believed, but I know they believed that infants should not be baptized to the point where they wouldn't recant even when threatened with their lives. So they, uh, they believed what we believe. I'm going to call them Baptists. Um, Let's see. Uh, so Jesus organized his church, and when they departed from the faith, uh, they began to persecute true believers, and we find that in the records. Henry II ordered that a company of Paulicians in Oxford, that's in England, should be branded on the forehead with hot irons, whipped, and turned out into the country with no food or shelter to die of cold and hunger. So there was a group of people called Paulicians. They were followers of the writings of the Apostle Paul. Well, that's what we do. That's who we are. And uh, we don't know a lot about them, 
but they show up in the records of their enemies as being persecuted for their faith in what is true. Um, there is a Catholic historian who says, if the Baptists had not been tormented and cut off with the knife for the past 1,200 years, they would swarm in greater numbers than all the reformers. Now, he said this uh, in about the year 1300 or 1400. So he admitted that Baptists go back at least to the second century. That's a Catholic admission that Baptists have been around all that time and that there was an awful lot of them and that they had been tortured and cut off for all those years. So even our enemies bear testimony to people that were our forefathers in the faith. Um, now, a Baptist historian has a bit of a problem because the Catholics had time to write history books about themselves. And most church history books are written from a Catholic point of view. I took church history when I was in college. And there's a lot of people that were presented to us as great Christians of the faith that were heretics because the textbooks we had were basically written from a Catholic point of view. Um, for 1,200 years, the true believers who held the Apostles' Doctrine were suffering persecution, prison, hiding in caves, living in the mountains. They didn't have time to write much about themselves. We have a lot of documents about the Catholics. Um, the Catholics established the Pope in the 5th century. They established indulgences in the 6th century. That was a great fundraiser. You guys want to do a fundraiser for your uh, Christian school? You could sell indulgences. It is a... It is a ticket that allows you to sin and get forgiven by the Pope. And you can buy it ahead of time. So, I mean, if you're going to have a big weekend and you're going to go carouse and party, I mean, just buy a bunch of indulgences ahead of time and you can have all the fun you want on the weekend and it's all forgiven. You remember all those uh, fantastic buildings I showed you in the Vatican and that cathedral? Those buildings were built by selling indulgences. That's quite the fundraiser. They came up with the doctrine of purgatory in the 7th century and praying to the saints, and on and on it goes as they departed further and further away from the truth. Uh, we also have a lot of documentation. I'll go back here just a little bit. The, uh, the Orthodox Church, about a thousand years ago, all right, I got come on, Mr. Mouse. The Orthodox Church about a thousand years ago, split from the Catholic Church. Um, here we go. You see this branch here? About the year 900 to 1,000. Okay, the, the, uh, the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox split. This is Roman. This is Greek or Orthodox Catholic. Um, it was all politics, had nothing to do much with doctrine. Uh, I used to argue, I didn't argue with, but uh, I used to talk to people a lot about the errors of the Catholics as opposed to the Orthodox. Because the Orthodox believe things like when you do the sign of the cross, you're supposed to go one direction like this. I don't even know which is the Orthodox direction, but the Catholics do it the other way. That's very important. The Orthodox Church knows the truth about the crucifixion because the Orthodox Church knows that when Jesus was crucified, they used 
four nails. One for each hand and one for each foot. And his feet were nailed side by side on a little platform. Now, where did they get that? They made it up. The Roman Catholic Church says, no, that's wrong. That's false doctrine because when Jesus was crucified, there were only three nails. One in each hand and they crossed his feet and put one nail through both feet. Where do we know that to be true or false? We don't. They made it up. And they would fight and kill each other over four nails versus three nails. And it's always a little humorous to me when I hear somebody write a song that Jesus Christ built a bridge to heaven with only two pieces of wood and three nails. I'm like, how do you know it's three nails? Because they got that from the Catholics, but we won't bust on them too hard. So the Orthodox and the Catholics have almost identical doctrine, little cosmetic differences. The, uh, the, Cat- the Roman Catholics say that, the, uh, that you have a pope, that he is the father of all the churches, and you should follow him and do what he says. The uh, Orthodox say, no, it's wrong to have a pope. We have a patriarch, and he is the father over all the churches, and you should follow him and obey what he says. So, I mean, it's just cosmetic differences, same difference. I would preach sometimes about the errors of the Roman Catholics, and the Orthodox people would go, ooh, yeah, that's right. The, the Roman Catholics believe that you can get saved by good works, and that's wrong. And they would say, oh, yeah, I guess that's wrong. If that's what the Catholics believe, <laughs> I'd show them scriptures, you know. And they didn't realize that the Orthodox Church believes all that same stuff, but... All right. All right. So we had the history that's written in the libraries of our enemies. You find a lot of people along these centuries that show up in the records as um, you know heretics, people, and and they're what they believed was described. They refused to pray to the emperor. They refused to accept infant baptism. They refused to accept the supremacy of the Holy Roman Pope. And they were called by different names, and sometimes all we know about them is just a a mention that this group of people existed and that they didn't follow the false doctrines. There was a group called the Montanists, and apparently they followed a guy named Montanus. Makes sense. Uh, We had the Donatists. I like that name. That's a good name. The Donatists. And they were followers of a guy named Donatus Magnus, or Donald the Great, I guess. I don't know. Maybe they were followers of Trump. I'm not sure. The Donatists. You had the Paulicians. They were followers of Paul. They're not sure if they had some kind of a preacher who was named Paul or if they were known for being followers of the writings of the Apostle Paul that's probably the most likely explanation but they were known as Paulicians Uh, big group had uh, the Waldenses they followed a guy named Peter Waldo you knew I was going to do this right? Yes. that is not Peter Waldo Uh, you had guys called the Henricians. Don't know a whole lot about them, but they must have followed somebody named Henry. They were the Henricians. The Arnoldists. 
They were followers of Arnold. They were not girly men. I'm guessing they were somewhere in Austria. The Arnoldists. Anabaptist was a very common name that shows up over and over again through all the centuries. And, of course, Baptist. Now, that's a little bit of our history. Tomorrow, we are going to get into Baptist coming to America. It's a great story. And... Uh, I hope you have a little bit of an overview of some of the people over the thousands of years, 2,000 years of church history, who believed that the Bible is the final authority for all matters of faith and practice. What are we supposed to believe? We're supposed to believe what's in the Bible. If it's not in the Bible, we're not required to believe it, and we shouldn't believe it. What are we supposed to practice? We're supposed to practice what's written in the Bible. If your practice does not line up with the Bible, you need to change your practice. Now, sad thing is, a lot of people, instead of changing their practice, they change the Bible. We're not doing that here. That's not what we're about. Wow, that was really good. I really learned a lot from that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Maverick Messages.